Welcome to, or welcome back to Tracing Inspiration. And just like the episode that I posted last week, this one too is a holdover from the beginning of my recording phase. And it's a holdover for the same reason as last week. It is vulnerable. And I talk about stuff that I frankly just don't really talk about anymore. I get to that towards the end of the episode. So if you're curious, skip ahead. It's about halfway through. I share some stuff that I don't usually share in a public platform. I decided that it's important to do that here because it ties into what unfolded as a conversation largely about masculinity, how people learn masculinity and teach each other masculinity. Among other things that come up, we discuss the positive impact that we've both felt since moving towards a life of sobriety. If you're into that voyeuristic look into what might be happening between two guys having a raw conversation, then this is probably your jam. So keep listening. How would you introduce yourself? Because I don't think that the way that I would introduce you is the way that you would introduce you. Sure. It seems like most people would introduce themselves per their job title. I don't always like that. So I guess if I'm introducing myself, I would... First and foremost, I'm like a partner to my partner, Caroline, and a, a dog, a dog father, I guess, at this point. I like to uh, adventure, as tacky as that sounds. Um, for people that are curious what I do for work, I'm a tree climbing arborist. When I think of you, I think of Luke, the guy who taught me masculinity, who reframed my thinking about how kindness can look in the world, uh, the philosophy degree that I didn't have to go into debt for and could have actually made an hourly wage, <laughs> and my introduction to mindfulness meditation. Those are all the things that happened in the time frame in which our life paths crossed. The only reason that, that our paths crossed is because you were working specifically for Davey in that specific branch. And you were still there in 2020 when I came. Can you just trace backwards a little bit to how you got there? <laughs> the long story is I worked in a bike shop for like uh, eight years throughout college on and off. I was going to business school and with the intention of inheriting a, a bike shop or buying a bike shop, essentially. And uh, like halfway through business school, I took a business ethics class and it was kind of deeply disturbing, honestly. Like, I remember the takeaway mainly being like, kind of like get away with as much as you can without breaking the law, like mm. in terms of how to make the most money. And I was like, this is not really like, it doesn't align with my ethics, right? Like the whole reason I wanted to open or own a bike shop is because I like enjoyed getting people outside and being on bikes and like, you know, improving the world, like more people biking, less driving, they're healthier, it's better for the environment. So on and so forth. So I uh, I took that class and I was like two years into college and I was like, I can't do this. Mm. Like This is not, regardless of if I, I don't think this pertains to the type of business that I would like to run. So what am I doing in taking classes like these to begin with? So I took a step back and reexamined why I was in that class to be, or in business school to begin with and what made me want to own a bike shop and I realized like the reason I was so passionate about bikes is because I like being outside mm. and that was kind of the long and the short of it so I decided to drop out of college which was not uh, received super well by my family and 
peers because it obviously seems silly in the moment, especially when you're like two years into a lot of debt. <laughs> and I worked and tried to pursue things that I thought would be more related to my interests of being outside and kind of improving the world. And so I worked on an organic farm and helped out uh, at a few other organic farms. There's an organic vegetable farm out near where I'm from. And uh, I don't know, it was it was really great. And I enjoyed being outside a bunch and uh, did a like kind of a vision quest type uh, road trip after the uh, farming season was done. And went out west and went snowboarding and biking and camping and all these things and kind of came to uh, the sensible realization that I need to go back to school because I needed to finish what I started. Mm -hmm. So I wound up going to a different college that focused more on environmentalism and being outside. And I majored in environmental science with like a focus in forestry, definitely related to trees, obviously, but more of like the mass farming of trees like you'd see in a national forest versus like singular trees like in arboriculture. And so I finished up getting a degree and once again, like the job outlooks were looking kind of bleak. Like it was like, oh, you can like sit at a desk for the DNR or work wildland firefighting. But it's from my understanding, like 60 to 80 hours a week, you don't have cell phone service. You don't get a break for six months. As much as I thought it sounded cool and fun, I learned over the course of college, I need to separate myself from work every day. And like the other more bureaucratic jobs sounded just like that, bureaucratic. And both of those, I didn't feel like aligned super well to the lifestyle I wanted to live and like what I was interested in doing. So I actually had a, a friend who worked at Davey and he was like, yeah, I'm, a, I'm training to be a tree climbing arborist. And I was like, I've thought about doing that. And he's like, well, we can get you a job if you want to come check it out. So I uh, wound up at Davey and I've been there ever since. I won't say it was love at first sight. It was pretty horrible for like the first year and a half. This is what I think is so fascinating about you, Luke, is that it's like you were in your 20s and you figured out what some people haven't figured out until they're in their 50s or 60s. I mean, just the fact that you were able to as however old you are at two years into college, to be able to recognize that you have your own internal core of ethics that is separate from whatever life course you feel that you're supposed to be on. Is that something that is just like a, a family value to get in touch with your ethics? Or is that something that you you started doing younger in life, even without their influence? I would say it's like half and half. Part of my family like is the type of person that does a job because it's a job and you get paid and then you go home but they embrace ethics heavily, like outside of work. All of their time outside of work is spent with precision. They're doing something that they love and want to be doing. And then the other part of my family, I would argue is like, they have a job for a reason. Like mm -hmm. my mom is uh, an early childhood educator and she kind of lives and breeds it and like is really passionate about it. Um, so I might be the most uh, <laughs> invested in ethics of my family. I don't know, maybe people would disagree, but I think uh, that is a, a large role in how I live my day-to-day -day life, maybe. Like what and who am I impacting by doing a certain thing?
whether it's something I'm buying or like the career path I choose or even just how I get around. You mentioned ethics being kind of the the first filter for you to make some pretty key pivotal decisions, like moving away from your degree plan and then trying some other stuff. And then you then you moved on to then evaluating lifestyle. So evaluating lifestyle, meaning this recognition that I want time outside of work. I loved the way that you framed that of the pe- some people in your family work and then their outside of work time is is like very precise. Um, so the thing I'm wondering about then is you would have been like late 20s and you're thinking about your ethics and then like how your your lifestyle is influenced by your ethics. But when I was in my late 20s, I I had no one around me who was talking about this type of stuff. So where were you getting communities of support to to even stay in that type of connection? Um, I mean, I feel like a lot of it was self-motivated and that has to do with a big thing that happened in my life. So uh, when I was like one and a half, my biological dad died of pancreatic cancer. So he would have been like real early 30s Mm. so I think uh that has always sat with me like you better be doing everything with a purpose Mm. because I mean he was diagnosed and then passed away I think in eight weeks and um and that's not like something that will always hang over like the way that I decide to live my life I guess is like me it influences me to make decisions with purpose, I guess. I'm not just going to be like, oh, this is a job. I'm going to get this job and I'm going to do it until I'm dead. To me, it, that happening made it clear that like you have a finite amount of time on earth. Mm. Um, and so you better be make it what you want it to be and make sure that it's, uh, it is what you want it to be and make sure that it reflects the legacy that you want to leave behind because I think life can just throw you crazy situations and then it could all be over in a blink of an eye. I think that's been something that has been a part of my life. Well, obviously it's been part of my life, my entire life, but like that idealism of like, would I be happy with what I have going on if I died tomorrow? Hmm. Um has kind of been part of my thought process since probably my teenage years. And that that is ultimately like how those decisions are made, I guess, I guess. Wow. Why that is part of it. Wow. When, I mean, my, my guess is you don't have any memory of him. You're a one and a half, two. But do, do you have any memory of that? It's like to the point where I'm unsure, I guess. If I was so young. I don't know if I've created memories or not. I feel like I might have a few, but I, I, based on science, I don't think I do. But I think, like, I mean, it was such a big part of my childhood that, like, especially with having an older brother who does remember stuff, like, him talking about it, like, I think from that early on, like, maybe his memories are, have become mine, if that makes mm. sense. Yeah, I was just trying to figure out, like, when you would have consciously started thinking about death. Because developmentally, whether it's talked about or not, around the age of nine, kids realize death mm-hmm. and that their bodies are a part of what that could be too. But 
you probably would have been earlier than that. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of my earliest memories are, I would say, involving that at some level. Like I remember, I like jokingly call it a dead dad camp, but we, uh, I remember we go, went to like a grief camp at some very young. I, I remember asking like outside of that camp as well. I remember like asking a lot of questions and like it being explained to me, like those questions were well before the age of nine. So yeah, I mean. Yeah, it just seems like that would have been difficult to have that awareness and know where to put that, how to organize that in a way that wouldn't have just turned into anxiety. Yeah, and I mean, I think it was anxiety for like a long time, especially when I was really young. Like, I remember being pretty like afraid and scared that like, well, what if my mom dies and then we're orphans or something like that? You don't know that it's like a useless thing to think about when you're a kid, but like, yeah, I remember that being like my biggest fear as a child. Did it scare you, the thought of having kids? I don't think so. I think I had a stepdad that came into my life when I was like six or seven. I was young enough to where he, I call him dad and like he is a father figure in my life. But like looking back on it, there's a big gap that definitely uh, influenced a lot of my thoughts as a kid. But um, no, I think my mentality for it now is I'm going to be the sickest dad. (laughs) I'm going to be really good at it, hopefully. I have a lot of ideas of what I think a dad should be, especially like in that time frame of like up until first grade. What's a good dad? I guess just like hopefully giving opportunities, taking time. If we were to have kids, one of us would not be working mm. ideally. And that's part of like the timeline of doing it later in life is financially preparing for it. But like, I'm blessed that I have a job that I like arguably might do for fun, but a lot of people don't. And to me, it's like insane to like, it's such a large percentage of our working life, especially like our conscious awake life. Like there's people that do a job that they don't really like. And then they have three kids and then those kids are in daycare for the entirety of the time that they're at their job that they don't like to me what was the point of you having kids? You spend like an hour of the day with them before they fall asleep at six o'clock every day. Like, so I guess being present and like being able to give opportunities would be what I would consider being a good dad. I'm struck by how much of this was something that sounds like was really kind of growing inside you in a situation where a lot of other people could have just shut that down emotionally of hearing about such what was kind of a traumatic thing. I mean, not kind of like a a legitimately traumatic thing influencing the family in a, in a way that I'm no expert, but sounds like would probably fit the definition of trauma, but then a willingness to, to receive that and let it influence you. Were you ever aware of, was there ever a push pull of, I don't want to be thinking this, I don't want to be feeling this and then choosing to feel it anyway. Yeah, I mean, definitely, like, I definitely experienced times and have experienced times where I'm like, I don't want to feel this way. But I think for me, moving past stuff as best I can is the product of, like, radical acceptance, Mm. which 
I think I was forced to learn at a very young age, not disregarding your emotions, but trying to determine if they are doing you good, what you can do to deal with them. Yeah, I could have just like sulked and, and I have definitely have like sulked and emotions, negative ones. But ultimately I've found like, life's a lot more fun when you accept, uh, accept like, uh, yeah, this is a shitty situation, but like, do I have control over something with it? I do, can I make it better in a certain way? Or like, what can I glean? from this situation to improve my life instead of just like kind of leaning into negative. You mentioned kind of at the beginning of this, how the first year and a half of doing this job, it wasn't necessarily the immediate honeymoon phase of things. It's not romantic, you know. <laughs> there is definitely a, the boot camp style type period of it. I think you were probably on the tail end of, of figuring out how to not hate it so much because i know because we talked a lot about toying with the idea of like let's just portland portland's where it's at or pacific northwest any anything is better than here um right and you seemed pretty intent on going like it was inspirationally like intent on going it opened me up to all sorts of new possibilities i mean i've still not moved to to portland but it shifted the way that I started thinking about my capacity to do other jobs and made me start thinking about like, okay, well, what's the experience I would need then to be able to, to relocate? Yeah. I think at that time too, I mean, I still do have dreams about moving somewhere different, but I don't think I was good at appreciating where I was at at that time. Like our job was pretty shitty. (laughs) And I was just like, that was my way of making it seem temporary. Like there was going to be an end to it at some point. I think more recently over like the past year, I've quit uh, drinking and stuff. And I think it's forced me to be more present in where I'm living and what I'm doing. And I think that uh, I wasn't entirely present, even though it might have seemed like I was, I think it was uh, kind of my way of validating like a shitty situation is like, it'll be different at some point, Mm. instead of doing the work to make it different, where I'm currently at. I think ultimately, like, yeah, those dreams, they're still there. And I think that they will come to fruition at some point. But like at that time of my life, it was just like nothing like this doesn't matter right now because this time next year I'll be somewhere else and I'll be like living a way cooler life. And then like drinking and forgetting about or trying to like diminish where I was at in life. And I think with sobriety over the past year and such, it is like easier to either be like, my life is pretty sick. (laughs) Like Minneapolis is cool. I have a sweet job. Uh, I do a lot of stuff in my free time that a lot of people don't do instead of, you know, just being like, this is a crappy place to live and there's nothing cool to do here. And, but ultimately felt like at that time I was kind of using it as a coping mechanism, being like, at some point I won't have to do this anymore. Instead of being like, what are the good parts about what I'm doing right now? I was just kind of writing it all off, trying to live in the present and being like, here are some bad parts of this, but here are some awesome parts of this. And I'm lucky to have these parts maybe. Yeah. That so much of that strikes home. I'd actually even forgotten the whole reason I started to realize, like, I think I'm using drinking for escape way more than I used to. That was always kind of an awareness of I'm using drinking because I don't know how to handle this social situation, or I'm really bored 
this will make it more entertaining. But yeah, talking to you and and realizing there's something that this guy has figured out about life and just that he's already having conversations about alcohol in a way that's at a new level. And I and I've shared with you, I expected everyone in the arborist world to just be much more into drinking after work. I in some ways, I was actually really hopeful that I would find that. I was hopeful that I would find another group of people who would be willing to go and make the sort of dumb decisions that I was making with myself independently. And I did not find that. And I've never been around, well, I mean, until I started getting more into the kind of the communities that I'm into now, which are uh, heavily influenced by Buddhist principles. Otherwise, since tw my 20s, everybody always drank until, and granted, there were still a lot of, of our colleagues who still did, and I still did at the time. But there were more people who were in uh, like highly esteemed positions who were able to, to articulate why drinking was interfering with, uh, they didn't use the same words that you did, but I mean, I think they apply here, the, pre the precision in which they lived their lives outside of work with an emphasis really on living life outside of work, as opposed to just shutting down at the end of the day, like I've paid my dues to society. I went and I worked for however many number of hours. I was pseudo miserable most of the time. There were some okay moments. Now I'm just going to go ahead and quiet my brain with the substance and fall asleep so that tomorrow I can wake up feeling a little uncomfortable and it'll be a little bit more miserable, but I'll have maybe some sort of excuse for the misery. I can blame it on drinking the night before. <laughs> it's just sort of this endless cycle. Yeah, absolutely. Quitting, drinking, definitely takes away that escape and forces you to respond to your situation a little bit more. How do you process all this stuff? How do you internalize these opportunities for learning and, and then take them into you, absorb them, and then put them into behavior change? I guess a lot of the time it starts with, am I, like I, yeah, like I was saying a minute ago, like I have that idea in my mind that life is finite, right? So mm -hmm. uh, part of the first part is like recognizing if a behavior is something that I want to be doing or not after I determine like I'm fine with this or I'm not fine with that. I don't know if there's a great way to, I just kind of do it, <laughs> force myself to do something head on, like rip the bandaid off. Like I woke up one morning all hungover last winter and was like, kind of lived out my drinking endeavors for my life. A lot of the things that I like to do are associated with growth and I like to recognize that growth. I can climb and prune harder trees. I can ride my bike longer. I can sit in the sauna longer. I've read X amount of books. So that's not like the only thing that drives me, but like I woke up and I was like, I'm hungover and this sucks. I don't think I'm going to like get better at drinking or there's not like a higher goal of drinking besides like doing it less, doing it less wasn't working. So I was just like, I'm going to be done. Yeah, I guess I've been done. And that's like one goal. I just told myself like, that's it. I'm not going to do it anymore. But like for goals in general, I guess it's just like identifying what the goal is, how I'm going to get there. And then just kind of jump into it. I guess I am slightly a planner. It's more of like figure it out as I go. I kind of have to do something once, realize the issues with what was going on, and then kind of go back, reassess, and do it again. If it goes well that time, but if it doesn't go well, then I'll try something different to do it again. And I mean, even like my 
relationship with drinking was like, oh, I'll only drink on weekdays. And then I'll I'll be like comfortable with my relationship with drinking. And like, oh, that didn't work. Like somehow I still got hammered all weekend, even though I didn't drink for five days, which is like great. But I think the real goal is like that I don't want to get hammered. So mm-hmm. I'll just drink one day a week. Oh, you didn't drink for six days. You can really hit it hard tonight. And then you're just like eventually getting to that point where it's like, I just can't do it at all. Right. And checking off all those boxes, all those attempts of things that I was trying to do. And I've done the same thing with other, I've gone back to trees multiple days in a row that it's like, I climb up a tree. I can't do it this way. We're gonna have to come back tomorrow with a different piece of gear or a different technique or something else until eventually, ideally you conquer the goal. But also learning that sometimes you're not going to conquer the goal can be like the hardest part, admitting defeat occasionally. Like, how do you square that? You're clearly driven by this like need to finish what you start. How do you forgive yourself when you can't finish something? Like, what are the signs that you just know? I wouldn't say that I'm great at that either, but a lot of the time it has to do with my body breaking down, recognizing physical issues. In college, I raced bikes. The training schedule for that was stupid, and you can only do it if you that's all you're doing. I went to work at being an arborist, and I was like, I'm going to maintain this training schedule. Well, it turns out if you work 10, 12 hours climbing a tree all day, you're not going to be able to bike like 40 miles after work. Like you just physically can't. I was very hard on myself, kind of like, I can't believe I can't do this. You should be able to do it all. Eventually realizing I I don't need to be doing this much stuff. And it is a hard realization. I don't know if there is an easy way to not do something that you have a goal on doing. Besides convincing yourself that it's better for you not to do it, maybe. A lot of times on trees and stuff, and I come to an impasse. Like, well, if I try this, there's a high likelihood of injury or death. And maybe that's fine if I don't do it then because I don't need to die or get really hurt. Which It's funny because like hearing it out of context, I mean like, yeah, obviously that's like a natural conclusion that you should come to. That's intuitive. There could be self-injury or death. And you're kind of one of the, not one of, maybe the only person. Well, no, that's not fair to some other folks. It was a, that was a rare way of thinking i would say that that in itself just of you being able to just name aloud no i don't think i'm gonna risk my body and also i might die if i do this we're not gonna we're not gonna do this like like that that stood out which i appreciated every single day i was pretty sure i'm gonna die today this is it it wasn't really helping me make better life choices necessarily but it was more like this is this is it i'm gonna make make a dumb choice Right. Yeah. And I've like accepted, I guess, circling back to the beginning of the conversation, expect, ex, uh, accepted that I'm going to die at some point, but uh, I don't really want to do it preemptively. I think a lot of life is just people comparing themselves to other people. And it's like, he would have done it. Great. Let him do it then, I guess. <laughs> I'm, I'm good on that. I don't know. You know what I mean? I think a lot of it too is like, I'm not and in those situations, if I can't do something, I'm not necessarily walking away from it. I'm giving, hopefully, ideally, ideas on ways that it can be done otherwise. The culture at our with our crew at this point has changed drastically. The people 
that are, uh, you know, committed to like longevity are still doing it. So what do you think influenced that? That's a pretty fast shift in work culture. I mean, it's just change in leadership at some level at this point, like me and a few other folks who were there when you were there are in leadership roles now and live fast, die young. It kind of has weeded itself out. And luckily enough at this point, like the people that are left over share similar ideals. And there's been changes in like upper management as well that have focused more heavily on stuff like that. So like we're feeling validated in that sense as well. It's interesting the influence that, um, I guess what I'm getting at here is the influence that concern about personal safety in leadership has, whether it's a nonprofit or it's it's in, you know, arboriculture that that is you're using your body for it. That's about really the physical body. And but then in nonprofits, then the leaders who have really been the most influential for me have been the ones that have prioritized their own health. And I've been reading a lot lately because I'm kind of putting myself through this pretend curriculum uh, that I'm making up where I have different coursework that I'm following. And one of them is just about like workplace burnout and recovery and um and and just reading about the really the 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 influence that it has on everyone around you when the concern for your own physical well-being is is pushed aside and there's so much in our culture that says that's what the look of a real leader is self-sacrifice down to the actual physical body is what what we should want that's the sign of giving it your all that's the sign of true commitment and i fell hook, line, and sinker for that. It was pretty convinced for years that to to do my best was to give everything there was to be drained at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, yeah, you said it is like, I think people can miss that in non-physical jobs necessarily. Like you're saying, you kind of don't think about it coming from arboriculture going into a nonprofit job but like I recognize that my partner who is in a leadership role at a nonprofit and it's like mm-hmm. how many hours did you work this week like 80 because that's not good for you either like I know you're like mad at me for not wanting to go for a bike ride because I worked like 11 hours but like every time your phone buzzes you like jump and have like a horrible response and like yeah. uh it, it can be transferred over to any career path. And I think luckily my partner and I have both kind of taken our growth in a similar way and luckily has been reflected in both of our companies, but they both have had similar like turnover of like people that don't want, yeah, exactly what you're describing. Self-sacrifice, those people maybe have weeded themselves out in other ways too, in both manual labor and the nonprofit world. Yeah. I hadn't worked hourly paid job that had the opportunity for, um, for overtime in a, in a long time. I've definitely done other hourly jobs in nonprofit sectors, but working at Davy when there was, it was so exciting at first that my labor could actually yield more money in my bank account. That was a totally new concept coming out of nonprofits. Usually it was like, yeah, more labor, more exhaustion, um, actually less money because now there's no time to eat. So I have to just go to a restaurant. Uh, uh, So yeah, that was, I, I couldn't, I couldn't recommend more highly for anyone who's been in nonprofits for a long time, just to complete stop, 
go and do something that is manual where you're paid hourly and realize working more than 40 hours a week is a lot of your life. And something about pairing it with a paycheck helped me figure that out. Our boss, it wasn't like he was ever like, I don't want to pay you overtime. But you know, of course, like it's a for-profit business. And so I I knew he doesn't actually want me working more than 40 hours a week. There at a certain point, it's the return on his investment isn't there. And unfortunately, it kind of took that of me seeing, oh, me working too much might negatively impact someone else for it to actually get into my body too. Yeah, definitely. We have in, uh, a wild relationship with work and America. <laughs> Shifting gears like pretty dramatically. And like, I don't know if I'm going to keep this part in the recording, but I just wanted to to mention which you've probably i don't know you're you're pretty intuitive you've probably put all this together by now but if not um one one thing that uh so well i'll just i'll just get kind of more straight to it then i'll explain back um so i don't talk about this very often but i'm actually trans and it was 28 when i transitioned and so like i grew up as a woman like super super woman like head cheerleader prom queen like all of that and then made a pretty pretty major you know i would I, it's not midlife a bit adulthood shift and so when when we met you know there there's more to the story basically than just never having worked in workplaces with men it was also like never having like still being pretty new. I mean, we're talking like less than 10 years, seven or eight years learning to navigate the world, even in a masculine presenting way. Um, but the first couple of years, there was like no passing at all. So I was really maybe only four or five years into pretty regularly like passing, like my parents to this day still don't always use male pronouns. And so like my brain inside my brain is sometimes like a real mind fuck of, of gender and and so a lot of that story and the impact, like the weightedness of the impact is lost in me not being forthright about that. Um, and one thing that I'm sort of expecting is going to happen on this podcast is it's going to come out one way or the other, no pun intended. And so I didn't want you to like later hear an episode and be like, why didn't he just tell me that? Did he not trust me? And so it has nothing to do with like a lack of trust. It's more a lack of like, I don't actually know how to talk about this. Um but but I say all of that to underscore the level of gratitude for you, but also in some ways, like for like the influence um, like of your father on in your life, because there are a lot of things about like learning how to be a man that I didn't learn. I didn't get to learn how to do that. I mean, of course, like I got to see other men in the world. Um, but there's a relationship, a mentorship between an older man and a younger man, especially one who is like, you know, their child, whether came from like their DNA or not. And my my coming out and the transition and everything with my family was, was rather difficult during those early years. And so anyway, so there wasn't any sort of support or training for that. And so in some ways, like you not only were like trying to learn how to be a leader on the job. And then somehow inherited this, this guy who's like, oh my gosh, he's going to fall out of a tree and die. We're going to get sued at any time. Then having to train me. Um, but you were unknowingly also having to train manhood in. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily have like a follow-up question. 
uh, to go with that. But I think it's, it's, I, I take very seriously the, the timing in which our lives overlapped because I was, you know, just grasping at how do you be a man, manual labor. And like, that's like gendered to an extreme. There's so many strange things that you're having to figure out, especially as a trans body and arbor, arbor culture. Like there's a gentility in the way that you bring maleness and masculinity into the world. And I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. I, I guess, uh, I, I don't know. It, can I ask if there's anything that like stuck out to you that was positive in that sense? Cause I mean, there's like so much toxic masculinity. It's hard to uh, recognize sometimes what's positive and negative when it comes to it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've got like a whole log list in my mind, but I mean, I'll just, uh, so, you know, some, some things are, you know, probably unique to you. And then, then some things I think are also like such easy things that other people can do starting with, just simply the fact that like you can even name there might be toxic things happening here and I might not know what they are. Like just even just naming that, the awareness that toxicity exists in workplace culture is already really helpful. Uh, you you just sort of carry yourself with this, um, I don't give a shit, but not like in a not an I don't care about what I'm doing. Like the quality of work is very clear and your your awareness of your potential impact on other people is very clear. And yet there's still this very strong, I don't give a shit about what you think of how who I am. I'm going to continue proceeding as I am. Little things like, you know, your lunch bag was basically like a, like a, like a canvas purse almost uh, of just like a, just, you know, just like a recycle bag or some, you know, just like little things that you're me coming into the world, be like, I have no idea what to expect here. Some people were exactly what I expected in some ways. I exactly expected um, just a gruffness. a like, what the fuck are you doing? Are you an idiot? You know, is sort of like, commentary on day one of the job <laughs> that but I expected that all of the time and and then you just had this you know nice lunch bag and would just uh talk about you know the benefit of humming and just hum <laughs> while climbing trees just sort of presenting like you can be you can be a man and that gets to be whatever the human is who happens to be wrapped in what looks like madness. Yeah, no, definitely. I think, uh, yeah, that's well put, I guess. I think my in my upbringing, I definitely uh, had like feminine presenting qualities from time to time. Uh, just like being more concerned about what I'm wearing and like also like not doing the quote-unquote masculine thing being from a small rural town like I wore the tightest pants I could and skateboarded all the time and it lent itself to getting harassed and like calling getting called names and whatnot yeah I mean that probably influences me like not giving a shit at the end of the day I think uh it's a weird thing to try and 
vocalize, I guess, like your relationship with your masculine identity. But it seems to me that if you just act the way you want to act, it makes your life better. And it can be hard to get to the point where you're comfortable, but like if you're comfortable with yourself, that's kind of starts to matter less what other people think, hopefully. You know, I, the other thing that was so, that had such an impact was there were a couple of times where you allowed yourself to to be vulnerable but and to show what was happening. And I'm I remembering one one particular time, it was the tree that you were in. I wasn't on that job with you, but it it failed and and so you dropped. Like, I mean, hopefully this is the only time that it's happened. And hopefully when I'm saying this, you're like, oh yeah, that one time that the tree yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. so hopefully there are more. But um, but it was like you were physically okay, but you were pretty, pretty shaken by it. Mm-hmm. Um, that so I'll come back to that. That was one. But then the other thing that you that you showed just just um this vulnerability, but this was actually maybe even just more like like a sweet sensitivity. We were it was 2020, so it was just after George Floyd had been murdered, and you were living like right in the epicenter of it. And I wasn't. I mean, I was going through a divorce, so I was moving. I was moving closer there, but I was for the most part pretty separated from it all geographically at that time. Um, and it was pretty close to you. And so there were like you you actually were allowing yourself to feel it seemed you were allowing yourself to feel the stress and the impact of of all of that and then bringing it into the the workplace and and not like in, you know, long eloquent monologues just sometimes short little quips of just like yeah this is this is really stressed and i'm i'm feeling a lot of anxiety about this and sometimes i just need to take a day mm-hmm. and so being open to being sensitive to the the world that is happening immediately around you as anyone really should but then the vulnerability that day um and the days that followed of having to learn to shake some of that rightful fear that you were dealing with as you climbed yet more dead trees that could fall at any point. Just to explain why these these had impact um, is because in both of these, both the, the airing of your vulnerability and then like the sharing, like just being being sensitive in the way that a human can be, that these were things that that even in my like, pre-transition days um i'd always been i'd always been like really against allowing that to show up in me because there's so much about um like being a woman in the world that there are these assumptions that you are going to be super sensitive and you are going to be super vulnerable um and you are inherently vulnerable uh that even always being a rather sensitive child i learned if i let that be seen more then I've already got my anatomy and biology working against me. Then when that is seen, then that's just going to even propel it further. So I need to squash all of that, which was, you know, it was whatever it was as a female, but then as you move into the world of then being a white man, then if you go through the world as a as an insensitive and refusing to be vulnerable white man, coupled with the, the privilege that I like, you know, once I started passing, then immediately inherited and continue to get to access then you run the risk of being a real douchebag um, or at least being perceived as one and perception still causes pain. And so 
I actually learned through much of your modeling of masculinity, how to allow myself to show my true, more sensitive nature. And after working in this uber-masculine manual labor world of arboriculture, became the most like effeminate in my features comfortably that I've ever been in my life because it was sort of like realizing, hmm, there's a way to do this. There's a way to be a sensitive and vulnerable man. And, and that felt really good when you modeled that for me. I mean, when I say feel like it was like the rockets on the ship attached and lift so many lift off points happened after that. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to hear that for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think ultimately like we've been talking about with like uh, kind of turnover of people pushing themselves too far. A lot of that is mirrored in this conversation as well. I think the day that I climbed that tree that broke, it was like, I knew that I was doing something stupid to the point where I'd asked multiple people, like, is this dumb? Oh, no, it'll be fine. But it didn't feel good. And instead of like listening to myself, I was like, oh, okay, I, you know, quit being a loser, get up there and do the thing that everyone's telling you is fine. You, It's fine. Uh, but I knew that it wasn't. And so then what, after that happened and a tree broke, um, A, it was funny to see the people that had told me this is fine to see how afraid that they were and to see their emotion finally come through. Although unfortunate that it took that. Luckily I was fine. But also B, being like, okay, well, now uh, it's become clear that if I feel a certain way, I need to respect that more than I was before. And I, I've, yeah, I think I've always tried to be mindful of that because I've had my struggles with, uh, you know, my brain and emotions and whatnot pre doing tree work and that entering into that masculine field that that was like where I finally was like, all right, fine. Maybe I am just being soft. Like I need to go up here and do it. Turns out my emotions and like my gut was correct. And uh, yeah, so then I kind of took that as like a validation in that and leaned into it more seriously than I had been before maybe. I'm, I'm laughing a little bit about the idea of you getting harassed for seeming effeminate. I mean, granted, I never saw you in the the, the tight jeans and the the uh the skateboard but my first my first uh memory of getting paired on a job site with you was like oh my gosh I'm just surrounded by all these giant viking men who can hurl trees through the air that yeah I mean <laughs> my sister likes to remind me of that because uh I try to be like as outgoing as possible and like I feel approachable still, but physically my identity has changed drastically since I guess I, I used to like straighten my hair and like wear the tightest pants I could and like dress glam and stuff in high school. And like, not that I don't, I mean, I don't do that anymore, not for any particular reason, 
but I just, uh, I don't know, maybe grew out of it at some level uh-huh. uh, or just changed styles. Right. And uh, I think at that point, you know, it was like, oh, I'm easy to get picked on and I look pretty vulnerable and all this stuff. And at this point, like, sometimes I'll be like, why, well, why didn't, why didn't they just ask me for help? My sister or Caroline, my partner will be like, you look evil. Like you look like the meanest guy in the world. You're wearing like a hardcore band t-shirt. You have a huge beard and long hair and you like have resting, uh, a resting angry face. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm not mean. And they're like, no, they're, that's not, you're not mean. And like the band on your shirt is like, uh, you know, like an inclusive band, but <laughs> you look terrifying to be honest. Yeah, it's true. It is true, Luke. <laughs> Which is hard for me to uh, recognize that sometimes, but like getting called out on it, I'm like trying to be more aware of it. And it's forced me to be, I'm not an outgoing person. I'm more introverted uh -huh. and like recognizing that like I don't look approachable has kind of forced me to kind of extra, be more extroverted and approach people myself. Hmm. I'm used to being approached by people and then striking up a conversation and like that was happening less and less <laughs> the hairier and like stronger I got and I'm like well what's going on it's like yeah you look mean like okay well <laughs> I have to be try my best to be more social and less mean at this point but yeah <laughs> it's definitely something that I've become more aware of well, that's cool. Congrats on on not drinking for a year. Hey, thanks. That's that's pretty big. What helped you succeed besides just like your very strong willpower and drive? I just like recognized that there was a bunch of things that I wasn't doing that I wanted to be doing more. Mm. And a lot of the time I just replaced time wasted on drinking with those things. And also like I think this can be a blessing and a curse when it comes to like drinking and substance abuse, but like thinking about the negative things that are like what kind of person you are when you drink. Mm -hmm. Like that for the some people that might be like, well, I'm going to be a shitty person, so I might as well keep doing it. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was just like, well, do I want to like be not really be in here for the rest of the evening and then wake up hungover and mad mm -hmm. and then not do anything all day and then you know, or do I want to like help people and listen to people and then be able to go on like a really long bike ride in the morning? Mm. And I think asking myself those questions made it uh, easy for me to, yeah, I guess that's what helped me succeed. But ultimately just finding something that helped me achieve my passions and like uh, take my mind away from it. I, I similarly realized what um, kind of like, where am I going when I'm drinking? So where I'm going somewhere, I'm going to not this place. And then for me, I realized, oh, I'm mean to myself. Like I would be arguably more fun for other people um, and would think that it was fun, but it was always in the aftermath of that, that I would notice, oh, this like inner, inner dialogue of self-talk is pretty shitty actually. And I'm noticing that it's way less shitty when I'm not drinking. That was another Luke, the philosopher 
you know, comments about how do you think this is going to go? And looking at, like you said earlier, I, I don't think I'm going to get better at drinking. And I tried the same things that you did. Uh, I'll just only drink on these days. And then would like make up for days in between and then just drink right. of tea on that day and realize I'm, I'm going to just be that, that kind of middle-aged man who's just still sitting here at uh, Wings and More on a Friday night. Doesn't matter what book I'm reading. Uh, I'm just like, I'm disappearing from the world uh, and I'm using, I'm using drinking as a way to like also think I'm socializing, but I'm not, I'm not socializing really. Right. Yeah, exactly. It was, yeah, I'm not, yeah, I have social anxiety and that was like another validation point for it. It was like, well, I'll go to the party and be social, but like, I'm going to drink 10 beers. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so how do you like solve any problems? Not, not right. really. Do you, but now how do you, now how do you, how do you deal with it? Um, it's not as hard as like, I made it out in my mind. Huh. That's, or like, it is hard to get there and like strike up the first conversation. Uh-huh. But then it's like fine. And I mean, I'm going out a lot less than I previously was for sure. Like, I just don't go into situations if I'm like, I don't think I'll be comfortable there. Um, but there have still been situations where I'm like, yeah, I'll go to this party or like I'll go to a wedding or whatever. And uh, yeah, it turns out it's a lot less scary. <laughs> then maybe I convinced myself it was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's almost scarier when you're like, wake up the next day and like, what did I say? Like, yeah. What I, did I do? Those are dreads that I do not miss one bit. Like, no, exactly. So, yeah, yeah I don't know. It, uh, it's easier and harder in different ways, I guess. But mm -hmm. I think like I hit one year on the 10th so like was that five days ago or what day is it uh 16th uh, but i was out uh bike packing in the desert in arizona cool and I didn't realize what day it was because we were out there for like five days and i was like oh no way i'm out a year and like it's like i guess it, that to me was a testament it was like i probably wouldn't be here or had worked this hard to make these plans to be here right now but i'm like out in the mountains outside of tucson camping with my bike and like doing exactly what my vision in my mind of myself i would like it to be and here i am doing it right now and maybe that wouldn't be the case hmm. still drinking so that was kind of a a validating moment yeah that's super cool did you and caroline go together or was that yeah know? we did yeah you drive down or did you have you have uh a way well, we, we uh got a flight and you can pack your bike up and put it in a box and they just like charge you for a check bag essentially when you get there you pop it out put the tires on put your camping gear on and go bike out into the mountains i guess a lot easier than driving three days to get to arizona yeah that's so neat well chelsea and i would uh yeah if you're ever up to trying something like that maybe not for a first time meet Chelsea. Let's all go camping for five days in the desert. Although that could be cool. That could be a yeah. nice way to just be like, let's, it's going to happen. We're going to, we're going to be friends <laughs> in the yeah. desert together. Actually, now that I'm saying it, that would be kind of cool. Um, 
but but actually i would love to try bike camping oh yeah yeah no we should definitely try and uh there's a lot of great opportunities to like bike out of the cities and go to a regional park and camp so like an easy overnighter well cool um thanks again for doing this uh, i really do appreciate it and just to kind of like just off the top of my head things that i feel like i wouldn't have done had we not met i wouldn't have gotten into yoga it was you plus matt sharrow in were the reason that i got into to yoga but then the yoga that i got into which was from him was all focused on mindfulness and breath work which you're that tree broke on you around that time. And so you introduced breath work. So then I got into that. That was all foundational work that I needed to start moving into um, what eventually led to sobriety, which you also played a part in just in that you were like verbally reflective and modeling what like reflective practice is in life on the job in your chit chatting. I learned how to chit chat because of you. Um, I mostly started listening to podcasts because of you, which were tremendously influential. Um, your comments about if you want to do something dumb, you got to be tough, which I know we're, we're not crediting you for, but I'm crediting you for, uh, that pushed me through so many dumb things that were great. Uh, I got back into running and have since then run like five different ultra marathons. And every time I would start suffering, one time running 43 miles on a broken foot, dumb idea, but your mind was with me in the mountains of Colorado or your words. If you want to do something dumb, you got to be tough. Uh, so maybe I mismanaged that quote at that point, but it was really cool. And I'm really glad I got to see that last 43 miles. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I'm in the same boat with doing ultra mountain bike races. So <laughs> I don't know if there's... We might be mismanaging that quote a little bit, you know, and you might realize that I'm, yeah, halfway through uh, ultra, but yeah, <laughs> it was good when you're done at least, and that validates your stupid decisions at the very least. Yeah, yeah, and the last like you know last couple of hours you can just tell yourself this is the last one I'll never do this again, and then then you wake up the next day and only remember the beauty of it. So yeah. But that's, that's just to start. That's just off the top of my head and all that kind of rippled into other things. And so, you know, don't want to like make you leave this conversation and be like, oh my gosh, what, what, what am I supposed to be doing in the world? Like I'm having this like impact on everybody. Like it was you just being you. And I really appreciate that. It's, I think it was, it always struck me as very brave. And so I appreciate hearing some of the backstory um, with, with more detail to realize that there was bravery that, that was also really grounded in thoughtfulness kind of throughout your whole life. So thanks. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate you having me on. And I think, uh, I could say that I probably wouldn't be sober without you. You were the person that, uh, I think I just needed an example of someone that being like, yeah, this is fine. This is a good idea. And you were the person that was like, I'm down to meet and talk about it. So I appreciate it appreciate that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's good. Yeah. I, I do this uh daily journal and I noticed, I think it was like this day last year, like I had to do something and it's like, what, what's one thing I'm like looking forward to, or it's coming up. And I had written like, Oh, I'm going to meet up with Luke, Luke Myers. I might've been that conversation. Um, for whatever reason, I guess this is like now our annual 
uh, meet up again. Maybe I'll yeah. see you sometime <laughs> before December of 2024, though. Yeah. yeah, that's funny. I didn't realize it was, yeah, I guess that makes sense. It is pretty close together. We have our little time warp every year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, good luck on the wedding planning and everything and uh, stay in touch. Let's, let's, let's get together sometime. Yeah, definitely. We'll do. All right. Cool. All right. Bye. Tell Carolyn. Hi. We'll do. See ya. Thank you to my creative friend, Ian Crawford, who composed the music that I use for this show. Support his dream by visiting his Bandcamp page. It's linked in the show notes. As with all episodes I produce here, my aim is to help you fall into a state of gratitude for others and into a firmer belief in yourself. But perhaps something I said or neglected to say caused you unintentional harm. And if so, please help me learn from that mistake. And likewise, if this show did succeed in moving you to gratitude or encouraging you to give that dream a shot, let me know. You can comment here or you can shoot me an email at tracinginspirationpodcast at gmail.com. Be well and remember... Even if the rest of this day feels like a complete mess, you being in the world matters. Stay with us. We need you.